pre-warning, there may be some swearing and adult themes in this podcast. From the kitchen table, this is Get Close Panic. panic for a few reasons. I'd realised in my honours year that I really loved meeting and interviewing women. Also some stuff came up in my personal life and I felt I needed to stop applying for jobs so that I could be a support person in my family and that left me with my uni job and without a lot of intellectual stimulation. I was also sick of having that what are you up to at the moment conversation and not having anything to say that I was proud of. But those are just reasons to do something, not reasons to do this. I did this because I wanted an antidote to the crushing feeling of being a human in the world right now, something that might counter the weight on my chest as a young person and the fear and rage that's always just beneath the surface as a woman and as an LGBTQ person. And I wanted what I did to act as a remedy for other people too. And in a small way, I think that it does, and I'm proud of that. But I think this week's episode is an example of that instinct and that motivation to do work which is both nourishing for you and for others with far higher stakes and greater personal demands. Alicia is a social worker who presently works with domestically and sexually violent men who are or have been incarcerated. And I think this is a good time to say that whilst nothing we talk about in the episode is of an explicit nature, We do refer to violence and sexual violence, as well as psychological abuse. So if this is something you prefer not to hear, now's probably a good time to stop. Also, if you're listening with kids, it's up to you to decide whether you're comfortable with them hearing references to these themes. If it's not already obvious, the subtext of this podcast goes something along the lines of, let's create a community of women and non-binary people who want to help each other and meet each other and share their skills and learn from one another. We want to create this community or grow the one we're already in because there are serious deficits in the way we're able to move through the working world. It's always after I've turned off the microphone that the people I interview start telling me about these really rough experiences they've had at work. And most of the time they reflect on these experiences as gendered. 
I think Alicia's work and her observations are a reminder of the stakes when we're working toward equality and how important all of our efforts are, little and big, to our lives and really to everyone's lives. As usual, I will be back at the bottom of the podcast for a little bit of housekeeping. I will see you then. So um, my name is Alicia and I'm a social worker and I work with um, men who use violence and abuse towards women. Okay, yeah. great. So we're going to start, which you might know if you've already listened to other episodes, but we're just going to kind of start at the beginning. Okay. So from whatever point you think is relevant, just talk to me about when you first started being interested in work. So this could be at school, you could be really young, it could have been when you were older, just wherever you think is the right starting point. Yeah. And we'll go from there. Um, I think my initial interest in work was purely functional and for money. Yeah. So my first job was when I was 14 at KFC and I was a vegetarian. Um, but they loved me so much that they let me get away with not doing shifts on putting the burgers together so I didn't have to touch the meat. But I did end up quitting for ethical reasons <laughs> after a year of making money. Yeah, okay. Um, a whole year. A whole year. I yeah, stuck, right. stuck with it. And then I've pretty much had a job ever since. Yeah, right. So I've been working since I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only been brackets where I haven't worked, where I've been travelling, but I've had jobs leading up to that to save to go away. Yeah. But I think in terms of career, yeah. like if I was going to separate between work and career, yeah. I think I've kind of started to become interested in what a career could look like for me when I was probably about 22, 23. And I had been, so from about 18 to 22, I moved overseas. And I travelled a lot and lived in a lot of different places and just met a lot of different people. And it really broadened, as travelling does, it kind of really broadens your sense of what's possible for you and, like, what's out there. And I think that um, I didn't finish high school so I think the highest grade I completed was year 10 but I remember really clearly being told when I made the decision to drop out that you won't get a job no one's gonna hire you if you don't finish school if you don't go to uni like that was the you know the message that all the authoritative people in my life were telling me yeah and I think even then I was a little bit anti-authority and I remember kind of thinking in my head no, I'll do what I want to do when yeah. I want to do it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I went travelling and kind of met all these different people and it really kind of opened up what was an option for me. Mm-hmm. And I got back when I was, yeah, about 22, I think it was. I'm a bit fuzzy with yeah, time it's okay. and whatnot. It's okay. So I got back and I decided that I would like to try university. Yeah. And I... I knew I wanted to do something with my time and with my life because I'd seen my parents. Like, I'm really fortunate. I come from, like, a middle-class family. But my parents came from, like, a a lower-class background and they worked their way into the middle class Mm -hmm. when they kind of had me. And so I kind of remember watching them work so hard. And, you know, they still work so hard. They're not Mm -hmm. retired. They still put in all their time, but... Um, I remember them working really hard in jobs they hated and it was sales jobs and they they had many different machinations of careers and I remember this one narrative that kept flowing through our family was from my mum 
that she always wanted to study psychology, mm. but she couldn't. Like she she had what for whatever reason she put a barrier in place, and I don't doubt that there were social barriers in place for her, but she'd also kind of put this mental barrier in there that she couldn't go back to uni, and she still says it today. You know, she's recently started studied um, hypnotherapy as a way of kind of filling that void, but it's not what she wanted to do. Yeah. And so I'd kind of grown up watching my parents be miserable in their working life, but then spending every, almost every waking hour dedicated to work and dedicated to making money so they could provide for us and, sorry, companies. Say, <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe if I close the door, then we won't hear it so much. I always forget about that because you get so used to it. Yeah, absolutely. I've been living here for many, years, yeah. for many years. Um, yeah, so I guess like just watching, watching them kind mm. of putting all this time and this energy, I guess it rubbed off on me in some way where I realised I'm going to spend, you can't get out of it, you're going to spend a lot of your life working and I want to do something that I like at least, mm. if not love, mm. um, that's enjoyable, that challenges me, that keeps me interested and like later in my life realizing that I wanted it to be something that had some sort of impact in an area that I was passionate about so that's kind of yeah where I kind of decided I'm going to go to uni and I'm going to start exploring kind of what's out there yeah and I start the start test I think it was called the start test like the adult yeah yeah test yeah Yeah. and I applied for a bachelor of arts thinking that would be a really good degree to just explore what is out in the world Um, and through my Bachelor of Arts started to become really interested in criminology Mm -hmm. Um, and I was also at the same time doing Aboriginal studies Mm -hmm. through the Flinders University program out there Mm -hmm. and I think just naturally through some of my learning in that I was exposed to things that I hadn't been exposed to in my life, you know, like I'm from quite a privileged background, I'm white, I'm middle class, I haven't faced very many barriers in terms of moving through the world. Um, And yeah, I think so through studying criminology, it was mainly I think through studying criminology that I really started to connect with um, certain kind of mentors, I guess, like academic mentors. And broadening out my notion or my understanding of what's possible when it mm. comes to rehabilitation yeah. of, of incarcerated people. Yeah. And when I finished my Bachelor of Arts, I knew I wanted to go into a Master's of Social Work. I mm-hmm. knew that's kind of where okay. I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, okay. Does that answer? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we get that far ahead um, – I mean, as uh, as much as I think it's really important to acknowledge kind of the, the leg-ups that you've had, the privileges that you've yeah. had, there are things like, for instance, if you if you had only kind of gotten up to year 10 in terms of what yeah. you've completed, how was that for you in terms of your abilities and what you were comfortable with moving yeah. into university? Yeah. How was that experience? Because that's got to... I mean, that's you've yeah. got to feel like you're a little behind 
the rest of the clan, particularly if, you know, you left it, whatever, 16, 17, and then you've been traveling, you've been having a really radically different experience to all of what would be your peers. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, like, one of my reasons for going into uni was that I had been meeting, like, I lived in London for a while, like every good Australian does, you know. Um, amongst other places, but when I worked in London, I think that's where I was kind of really exposed to um, narratives of different communities that I had just never, ever even thought about. And I had a lot of friends who were Israeli mm-hmm. who had moved to London to get away from being having to serve their mandatory army time. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was just like mind blowing. Yes. Like, and that's when I really remember starting to think, like, what's going on in the world? Yeah. And it was when, and then when I moved to New Zealand later on in a couple of years' time, and seeing how, I mean, New Zealand is also with huge, like, they have huge faults in terms of how they um, embrace and incorporate the Maori community over there, but they are strides, leaps, and bounds ahead of what we are in Australia in terms yeah. of our relationships with Aboriginal communities and mm-hmm. Aboriginal people. And it was when I was in New Zealand that it just hit me in the head. Like I knew nothing about our history. I knew nothing about the relationships between white Australians like myself and Aboriginal communities. And I just didn't know anything. And I was starting to really develop through hearing all these stories from people about, like I think I was starting to strengthen my social justice backbone that had always okay. been there, but I just didn't know what it was. Yeah. You know, like I have very early memories of, of having very clear ideas around what was fair mm-hmm. and what was unjust mm-hmm. in in what I was seeing or what people were saying. Mm-hmm. But I never really felt like I could articulate it. I never really felt like I had a, a voice in any of it. I didn't really know what it was. Yeah. And so when I naturally obviously from not having completed high school my basic knowledge was lacking. Like your your, ba- your education system provides you, if you go through it, this basic level of knowledge that allows you the next level of access to some of what society has to offer. Yeah. And I definitely felt prior to going into university that I didn't have that. I felt it was a huge deficit. It was a massive deficit. And I was really worried because I – I'd never sat an exam before. I'd never written an essay before. You know, like none of that had been part mm. of my life. Yeah. Um, the stat test was the first exam I ever sat and I was terrified. I bet. It was, yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, coupled with the fact that I have dyslexia. So it was just like this, like, <laughs> it was just like, what am I doing? Why am I going into this? And the criminology screen sits in the law department. And more exams are just really intense. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, I think I definitely, there was like a bit of a, I felt a bit on the back foot mm. um, from various different areas. Mm-hmm. But I was so, I think I was just so ready for it. Yeah. And I was ready, ready to give all of myself to it and I really did for my undergraduate I never got lower than a distinction except Mm. for one subject and for my master's degree it was all distinctions and Mm. high distinctions but I had to work 
like really hard for that. And not as hard as some people would have to work, but for myself, you know, like I really had to commit to that. Yeah. So there was huge barriers going into that institution that was so foreign to me. And, um, yeah, and sometimes I just think, God, what would it be like for other people to go into that system where I grew up very privileged, had access to education, and how terrifying it was for me. And this is an institution that's made for people like me, for white middle-class women and men, you know, yeah. like this, that, that's an institution that is very embracing of that tiny fraction of our community. Yeah. Um, and yet I had these hurdles and barriers that I faced in going into that. Yeah. So yeah, no, there definitely was a, it was a steep learning curve, Yeah. but I loved it. Yeah. Like I really, really loved it. Mm. I love learning. I love reading. I love writing mm. and I love challenge. Like mm. I just, I really enjoy it. So as difficult as it was, I enjoyed the difficulties. If that yeah. makes sense, yeah, it does. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. does. What did, what what happens in a master's of social work? <laughs> Very good question. Um, <laughs> what happens in a master's? Of well, social it's work? I I know there's a few masters that I have an idea yeah. of, but I don't know what happens in a um it's not like your typical masters I I, I don't know because I haven't done a different masters but I know from a lot of different masters degrees you have to have a background your undergraduate has to be related to the masters that you study I think one of the problems and I would say it is a problem with with having a masters of social work is you don't have to have an undergraduate degree that correlates with doing a masters of social work at all no Oh, wow. Not at Flinders Uni and not when I was there. Right. Um, so you, in some ways it's wonderful because you get this real diversity of people in the course. Yeah. Um, people coming from really different backgrounds who have just decided, you know what, this is what I've always wanted to do and this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And then I think you have some people who see it as a possibly easy master's to get. Um, So there's a real difference in the student populace in a master's. This is just my experience um, in, like, yeah, in the people that you see going in and out of a master's of social Mm -hmm. work. And, you know, I think a lot of people have that model of P's equal degrees. um, And that's, like, what's going to get you through. And it's true. No one, like, when you come out into the workforce and you're applying for work, they don't ask you for the grades that you got through that time. They just want to see the piece of paper that says you graduated. Yeah. So I think it's very easy for people to get through that degree, which is a concern given the level of access it gives you to some of society's most vulnerable people. But on the more lighter side and the more positive note, the more, like, it is that idea of, like, the more you put in, the more you get out. Okay. And... But And if you put in, it is a hard degree to get through. So it's quite reflective. It's a very different style of learning. So coming from my undergrad, which was in the, the law stream and criminology, you know, it's you don't use I statements, you know, like everything's backed up. It's that real academic, which I love. That's my favourite style of writing. Yeah. I love writing an academic paper. But in social work, it's really a lot about um, you still do some of those essays Mm. but a lot of them ask you to insert yourself Mm. into that and so it's about being self-reflective and Mm. and that is hoping to 
promote self-reflective practice for social workers, which I completely support and understand. But it was a, that was a big adjustment for me as well because I was yeah. like, oh, I don't put an I in an essay. Yeah, <laughs> it feels so informal when you yeah. first start doing it. Yeah. yeah, but the general structure of a Masters of Social Work is you have core coursework that mm-hmm. you would do like any other degree and then you have two 500-hour placements at the whenever you fit them into your two years of Masters. Okay. And that is set up by the university. So at the end of your two years, you should have done a 1,000 hours of placement in yeah. two different agencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> and you, at the end of it, you felt like you had definitely done the right thing. You were doing – you are in kind of the field that you wanted to be in. Yeah, I think um, I felt that I had done the right thing in terms of what I needed to do to get access to the field that I wanted to be in. Okay. I, for me, I did not feel that the degree itself set you up with the skills that you needed to enter that workforce. You yeah. feel, did you feel underskilled when you went in or did you feel that way upon reflection when you started working in the field? I felt underskilled when I went in. Right, okay. That's terrifying. And yeah, especially... I, like, I started in quite a hard environment. Um, so I, I did my two 500-hour placements at two different agencies, yeah. and one of them was in the Philippines. So mm-hmm. my final placement, I did a four-month um, working placement in the Philippines, mm-hmm. which had multiple challenges as well. Um, but I was really lucky because I was flanked by some amazing women it, it was just all women that went over five of us and the connections made with those women were just so valuable and I did learn so much from from them so yeah you do these placements but then when I came out of my degree and was looking for work in the workforce and I think I I imagine that everyone does this when they come out of their degree you kind of just expect that there's just going to be this job there for you you know yeah. Um, I've got my degree now, I'm ready, someone hire me. Yeah, Yeah, I know about that. (laughs) And yeah, like you just think, I've got it. Everyone's told me that this is what I needed to do to get that piece of paper to get the job that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think when I look around, I see a lot of people either in my social life or in my professional life who come out of their degree and they have an idea, like an ideal about the work that they want to do. Like this, this is the job I want. This is mm. what I want to do. And they very quickly realise that that's not accessible to them yet. And that you've got to start a lot lower and then work your way up. Yeah. And I think that's quite foreign for a lot of people, that concept that maybe actually it's not foreign for a lot of people, but it's foreign for a lot of people in in my life coming from privileged backgrounds, Mm. you know. And so from if you come from a privileged background, you have a stronger sense of entitlement and an expectation that doors open up for you. And I definitely had that, you know, like I got out of my degree and I knew it was gonna be tricky. Like I knew I'd have to go for a few interviews and I you know, like I just I thought three interviews and I'll have a job. Everything will be fine. And um, it just was not like that whatsoever. (laughs) And all the jobs, and I didn't understand either that the jobs that I was applying for, like the classification levels that come up with job, 
No one explained that to me. No, so no I'm doing for jobs that are like, you need 10 years experience yeah. based on that classification. But I'm just like, as a recent graduate, <laughs> yeah. I have these skills, please hire me. Yes. <laughs> um, so I very quickly got in touch with somebody who I now is one of my colleagues. Yeah. Um, who his research in my criminology degree and my master's degree um, really informed a lot of my uh, development of knowledge around working with men, men who are domestically violent and sexually violent towards women and what's possible in terms of ensuring safety for women and children um, through working with men and holding them to account. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's, inc- he's an incredible guy. And um, I was fortunate enough when I was a volunteer um, supporting women who were leaving their partners um, to have him as a bit of an informal supervisor mm-hmm. and had such an academic crush on him and it was really just like one of those terrifying moments where you're like, oh, I have to try and have a conversation with you and I don't know what I'm going to say yeah. and I want to be impressive but <laughs> nothing's coming out of my mouth <laughs> I'm just looking at you with love eyes. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I'd had this like, kind of informal connection with him through that and I got out of my degree and was struggling to find work. Yeah. Little did I know I was applying for the wrong jobs and I called him and I said, you know, like, what do you recommend? Because he, he was doing the work that I wanted to do. So how do, I, how do I get in there? Like, I don't know how to get in there. And he said, you've got to start low. Like, this is the entry point. Yeah. Um, so we work for the same system. And he said, this is the entry point, And then you work your way up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, got it. Okay. So then I applied for one of the positions that he recommended and I got it. And I was really fortunate because it was uh, an office that was managed and supervised by women who were really supportive of me. It was out in Elizabeth Mm -hmm. and it was working with people who um, have incarceration histories and who were in and out of prison and who were serving community orders. Mm -hmm. And it was just plunged straight into the deep end. You know, like, here's your epic caseload of at one point up to 50 active clients a week, <laughs> go. And it was just terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I just I just didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if I was doing right. And I think for me, I just, I'm so acutely aware of how much damage the social work profession has done and can do. And not just social work, like all helping professions, psychology, psychiatry, youth workers, everyone. Mm. Very unaware of the power that's imbued in that role. And I just was terrified that I was doing wrong, you know, by people. At the same time, I was hearing like these really horrific stories and narratives over and over again. And because of... um, busy I was there was just no time to stop and I also had a goal in mind around where I wanted to be yeah so I was kind of trying to give all of myself to my work and I wasn't really giving any of myself to like my life outside of my work yeah and so it just it just got really muddled really quickly what what is your what I mean what did your working week look like what kind of 
at that point. Yeah, how, yeah what's yeah. the structure of your day like when you're doing something like that? So at that point, I was, we were still living here yeah. in Theverden and I was working out at Elizabeth. Yeah. So it's about a 40, 45 minute drive. Yeah. So I was getting up quite early and trying to go to the gym on the way. That was like my one thing where I was like, I just need something for yeah. myself, but that fell away very quickly. Yes. So I would leave here and I had to be at the office by eight. So I was getting up at about six. Like I'm one of those people I like my morning routines. Yeah. I really like taking a back lunch to work. I'm not a by lunch person. Yeah. So um, I'll make breakfast and then I'll make something for lunch if there's no leftovers. So like it was, you know, I was getting up, trying to fit everything in. And then I would be leaving at like 5.30, whatever, six. Yeah. And getting back here. Um, and then doing it all again the next day. And at that point as well, I was on contracts, like very short-term contracts. Yeah. And I had a sense of security in the fact that I, I knew I was valued there and I knew that they were going to keep me moving. Um, they were very vocal about that. But it didn't give me – I didn't feel that I could take what I was entitled to, like my leave. Yeah. And I didn't feel like I could book anything in because my contracts were so short that – if I booked in leave, would I come back to a job? Yes. Like, would I come back to a role on contract yeah. or is that it? So I really just hit the ground running and then I just kept trying. When you say you had 50 cases, what does a case involve? They're very different. They look very different. Okay. Um, some people you will see twice a week. Some people you'll see once a week, once yeah. a fortnight. Yeah. Some people require a lot more advocacy work. It was more yeah. of a case management position. Okay. And for me, that's not something that I wanted to get into. Yeah. So I really did see it as like a temporary okay. stepping stone for me. Yeah. I knew I wanted to get more into clinical work and therapy work. Yeah. But obviously you can't step out of uni, as, as I learned. Um, you can't step out of uni and into that clinical role. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that everything looked very different and the nature of that work is that it's person-centered so it's what the person needs you provide it's it's not like a standardized yeah this is the level of contact we're having this yeah. is the level of support I'll provide like there is boundaries and barriers obviously mm -hmm. but um yeah it's very different mm -hmm. and, and it's always in flux given the nature of the clientele yeah okay very complex people, um, very heavy lives. Um, yeah. And at that point, I was working with men and women on various different areas of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and then through working there, I started to have contact with some of the people in the team that I'm in now. Okay. So we work for the same system. Yeah. And there was um, two women in that team who kind of shepherded me and and kind of um clocked me quite quickly mm -hmm. and um started to support me around like is if this is what you want to do like this is what we can do to support you mm -hmm. to get you into this and quite quickly I so I was only in that role for about five months I think okay. it was and then I yeah. moved into the team that I'm in now mm -hmm. which was huge because for this team the classification level that it's at, you need to have at least five odd years of experience. Mm. And I came in after 
five months out of my degree mm-hmm. as the youngest person in the team by a mile at one point and with obviously the least experience. You know, I didn't even have a year under my belt, no clinical experience whatsoever and kind of rocked up and was like, hi, I'm here. Yeah. Like trying to assimilate to this like very professional, highly skilled team of people and I ended up getting quite I think I developed quite a strong imposter syndrome yeah, I bet. thing and that was where my anxiety lied not with the work itself but yeah. it was like I shouldn't be here yeah. I can't do this job everyone knows I can't do this job and very quickly going into that team where I was the youngest and least experienced mm. I started getting a lot of opportunities thrown my way that would usually go to other people in the team that have been there for decades or have years of experience under their belt or are seen as or see themselves as experts in that mm. area and it became apparent that I was coming into that space and that it created tension. Why do you think you were having those opportunities thrown at you? Um, as opposed to those people that you would usually assume would would have them. I'm probably gonna sound like I have a uh, like a massive ego, and this is on the back of saying I had imposter syndrome. But I think in reflection now and where I am now, um, I'm good at my job. Yeah. Um, and I like saying that now. You know, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to say that a few years ago. I'm really good. I love what I do. Mm. I'm incredibly committed to it and very passionate about mm-hmm. it. And I love a challenge. Like I said before, yeah. I love challenging myself and I love learning from being challenged. Yeah. I love learning and I work hard. Mm. I work so hard. Mm. And I, I worked hard to get where I am and I work hard in my role. And I think that commitment shows. Yeah. Okay. Um, Having said that, I think that I probably put, I worked too hard. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is compounded by being a woman in the workforce and feeling like you need to show them that, like, to prove something, you know, like that, that there's this burden on women. And, you know, speaking to a lot of women my age who are now four or five years into the workforce. Mm. So many women have experienced this where they feel this burden to prove that they are, they should be there yeah, and to take up that space yeah. and to be deserving of that space. Yeah. And um, I think I just, yeah, I've worked myself to the bone at, at like various points to yeah. say, this is my place. Mm. I deserve to be here and I'm willing to do what it takes to be here. Yeah. And it's, I do think there was a gendered aspect because when I came into that space, the person that would have usually been getting been getting those experiences and was taking up that space was a man. Yeah. And he was a lot older than me. Mm. And then all of a sudden I came in and the, the focus shifted. Um, and, yeah, it created a lot of tension. But at the same time I did have that underlying he's right, Yeah, I shouldn't be here, yeah. I'm not the person for this job and I think it's also compounded once again by the fact that the men that I work with um, have a, a very skilled at 
undermining women and they're very skilled at manipulating women. This is not my colleagues. These are men, domestically violent men, yeah. um, sexually abusive men. And, uh, you know, now I'm in a position, I mean, it happens all the time, but now I'm in a much stronger position in terms of owning my space there. But when I began, I didn't feel comfortable to own my space in my, in my workplace. And then I think it was difficult because I was picked up by those men that I was new to this space, that I was a young woman and like, right, let's go with that. So I was kind of combating both at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, it absolutely does. Um, I'm just kind of trying to think about what direction's best to go in. When you moved into this team yeah. that you're in, how did your, how did your work change? Hugely. So I went from the case management position, which is more around, um, case management is more around, like it's a very valued role Mm. and case managers are generally, I feel like in my short time being out in the field, really undervalued. Mm. Like they're quite often the first line of contact. Um, They deal a lot with crisis, Mm -hmm. so immediate crisis. But in dealing with immediate crisis, it's often through referrals for specialists. And referral to specialised services. Okay. And the work that I wanted to do was the specialised work, not yeah. the referral work. Yeah. Um, but they, they work really hard. Mm. So I went kind of from that role into a clinical um, therapeutic role, okay. um, which is around counselling, um, ongoing counselling, yeah. uh, group therapy programs um, in custodial settings, but also in the community mm-hmm. and individual therapeutic engagement so mm-hmm. um, individual counseling alongside group therapy programs mm-hmm. yeah um and the shift in the the group of people that were your clients yeah yeah was to only men yeah then? um it was until very recently <laughs> okay um so yes so when i was working in a case management role mm. it was men and women but Obviously, incarceration rates for women are a lot lower, so my clientele was probably around 85, 90% men. Yeah. The other percent women. Yeah, okay. Um, so it was a small, small part of the work. Yeah. Um, but I loved working with women, mm. and I think, oh, that's – like, for me, so now mm. I'm, I am moving back into working with women. Okay. Um, currently, so – um, and I think it's – I really realised I, I miss that. I really miss working yeah. with women. I find it quite rewarding. Anyway, so, yeah, I kind of went into – from that into working with just men and mm-hmm. just men who are violent and abusive towards their partners and mm-hmm. their children. Mm-hmm. Um, so just within that domestic and family violence context, mm-hmm. whereas before I was working across a range of – Offences, I guess, mm-hmm. if you were going to put people down to, to their behaviour. Like, I was w- working with people on different types of offending. Yeah. Um, but I I knew I wanted to go in and work with men who are domestically violent and abusive. Mm-hmm. That was where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and that came from having worked or volunteered with women leaving their partners. Yeah. Um, and seeing how much of a responsibility that those women take 
mm. um, for his violence and abuse. But then also in terms of shift of lifestyle, you know, they often lose their homes, they don't have money, um, they take the children, like they've got the children yeah. full-time within mm. their care, um, they have to move, they have to disengage from friends and family, you know, they, they shoulder all the responsibility and then you see men just move to another partner and then that partner has to do the same process yeah. and then they move to another woman and then that partner has to do the same process. And for me, like, very early on, I realised, like, what's going on here? Like, why isn't anyone working with men around what they're doing and mm. taking responsibility for what they're doing and mm -hmm. changing their behaviour that they're responsible for? That's my motivation for doing the work. Mm -hmm. But I do find it difficult because I love working with women. So yeah. at this stage in my career right now, I'm about, I've just accepted a a contract to do some work with women mm -hmm. and it's just temporary um but I'm really looking forward to it because I kind of I think I just need that that shift for a little bit mm. um I think I'll always oscillate between working with men and women in this capacity yeah um and in this field but I think I need to keep it moving and keep it shifting because mm -hmm. I think if you work on one side of the fence, particularly with the men, um, I think you could get weighed down a lot as a woman in that role, whereas working with women will give me that capacity to kind of remind myself why I'm doing the work I'm doing with yeah. the men in yeah. the first place. Yeah, yeah. helps you to see yeah. the value. How was or is, mm. if, you've only, if you've only just taken this contract and it hasn't started, for you personally, this work? How does it affect you, yourself, in your yeah. life? Yeah. The work that I'm doing now, like what I'm well, doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I touched on it before a little bit when mm. I said that, like, the burden of a woman in the workplace means that you put more of yourself into it. Mm -hmm. And I think for me that started very early on in my master's degree where, for whatever reason, I felt like I really had to prove to myself that this was it and this was for me and that I could do well. And I, I had that throughout uni and I think that's why I, I put so much of myself into it. But with my master's degree, I was doing a full-time master's, I was volunteering, I was working four nights a week at a pub. And then on top of that, I was doing a 500-hour placement in, in there, like, for both years. Mm. And I that set me up what I was willing to give to my work yeah which is more than now I've realized it's more than what I am willing to give for the rest of my career going into my master's and working that hard and giving my, all of myself to that like my social life slipped away my health slipped away a little bit yeah like things that I valued and and the things that make me who I am outside of my career and outside of that interest just fell away very, very slowly and I didn't realise it. But I kept saying to myself, I didn't realise the extent of it, but I knew I was what I was doing. Like I knew where all my focus was going and I remember saying like you just got to get through it and then like you can get your health back, you know, you can start going to the gym again, you can see your friends, you'll have money, like everything will be fine. Like mm. just get through these two years and then you'll just build everything back up. Yeah. But then I went into the job that I went into and it just continued. Mm. I had set myself up 
as willing to give all of myself to that. And so it just continued. Yeah. And I think it's only been in the last probably six months that I've really taken stock. I finally used some of my leave and I went away and I took stock of like where I was and realized I'm in a really great place in terms of my career. Mm. And what I've put in is now paying off Mm -hmm. in that sense. But what I've put in and what's been lost to me because of that, I would say it's worth it because I love where I am in my life and I wouldn't change it for the world. But I think moving forward, I'm pulling back. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So moving forward, I'm pulling back from how much time, how much mental energy I'm giving to my work um, and starting to hopefully reinvest in the things that I love outside of my job that make me me. But I think it is tricky because what I do for a living ties into who I am as a person. Yeah. And it comes from the heart and so it comes from who I am and it's hard to draw a line on like how much of my heart am I going to give to this? Yeah. And it ties into my value systems really strongly. So if I pull back from work as I have been a little bit, I'm still working quite hard, but there's part of me that like questions like, are you, is this okay? You know, like, are you allowed to pull back this? Are you still doing the best you can do for people? Are you still being an ethical practitioner? Are you Mm. still living to your values? Are you still demonstrating who you are in the workplace? Or are you starting to pull back too much? So it's finding that, but I think I'm at that age and that stage now where I'm like, I need to find the balance that's right for me. And yeah. And I think that's that's where I'm at now. It's mm. just like really exploring that and giving my a bit more of myself to that. Mm. Yeah. Um, do you think that taking this contract is gonna help with that? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Is it similar work to what you did in your placement? So um the contract that I've just taken is as is as a rape and sexual assault counsellor yeah. with women. Mm-hmm. Um and it's uh the position itself is with Aboriginal women. Mm-hmm. So um it's a new challenge for me once again. Like I, I'm like I have experience in working with Aboriginal clients, mm. but I it's very limited. Yeah. So I'm really really looking forward to what that's going to look like for mm-hmm. me. I think my practice needs that. I need to start investing in opening up my practice to things that are outside of my Eurocentric education and social work. And I feel like I've, I've held that space throughout my career, Yeah. but I think this position is really going to allow me to sink my teeth into that and really find a space for myself in that and work with people in a way that is useful for them and work with hopefully Aboriginal women in a way that is useful to them and yeah who they are in their community. Mm. I'm shitting myself. <laughs> because yeah, I can social work, the profession of social work has such a horrific legacy um, in terms of the part that it played in the stolen generations mm-hmm. and its general relationship with Aboriginal communities. Um, we've been responsible for some really horrific 
trauma that Aboriginal communities have suffered. Mm. So the title of social work comes with that legacy. Mm. Um, And obviously on top of that, I am a white woman. So for me at the moment, I'm just really trying to come to terms with what my privilege looks like in that therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. and hopefully not reconstructing oppressive support practices which support with air quotes you know I think um, a lot of damage has been done in the name of good Mm. um once again good with air quotes yeah gotcha so yeah I'm excited and I think it is going to give me that space and I think working with women is going to kind of hopefully recharge my batteries a little bit Mm. um because I do think that the work with men is absolutely integral and that they need to be held responsible and they need to be offered the chance to make the changes that they need to make to be a safe partner um, and a safe father or parent. So, yeah, it's a bit tricky. But, yeah, I I feel like I'm in a good place with that at the moment and I'm going to be part-time working with women, so I'll be three days a week at that job and then two days a week in my current role. Okay, so, good balance. Yeah, it's yeah. going to yeah, balance it well. Mm. Yeah. Okay, um, we're kind of wrapping up, but right. is there anything that I haven't asked you that feels really pertinent in your in your story? Oh, I don't think so. Like, okay. I think that it's hard to... And I'm not sure if other professions, and so I'm really interested <laughs> yeah. to listen to some of the other interviews that you do. I feel, for me, my profession ties so much into who I am as a person and my journey. I hate that I just said journey, but... <laughs> I said it. I started it. It's Let's go goal. there. <laughs> <laughs> but it ties so much into, like, everything that I've experienced in my life, yeah. what I've learned about myself, self-reflections, through my relationships with other people and it it ties in there so much so there's so much that can kind of come into that narrative but I think I think I'm happy with what I've put forward good yeah Yeah. okay good well done perfect you did it glass of wine yeah always Not to sound too much like Rosie at the end of an episode of Degrassi, but if anything in this episode has distressed you, I'm going to link to a few support services on our social media posts. As usual, like and follow us in all the right places and subscribe and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. I've been Sarah Bell. This has been Gate Closed Panic. I will see you next Friday. Mm-hmm.